Amen. Today is the day to worship the Lord, and we're glad to have everybody here this morning. Just want to read from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah said this, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So I'm grateful that we serve a God like that today. And I just invite you to stand up and sing praises with us as we, as we praise him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I encourage you to sing this as a prayer this morning. that's our prayer this morning, that you will take our lives, that will use us for your glory and your purposes, that we can walk with you. We pray that you'll bless this time together, bless the bringing of your word, open our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I believe the kids can be dismissed at this time for Sunday school. And we do have a couple of announcements um, before our message, so Everything's in your bulletin. Just uh, draw your attention to a couple of things. The, uh, there's a WMO meeting coming up on, in a couple of weeks here. Uh, make sure you have that on your calendar, ladies. Got a special guest. Um, there's a Get to Know Us luncheon, um, and we're asking for your RSVP if you, haven't, if you haven't attended one of those yet. You'd like to learn more about our church, so that's details are in there as well. Um, there's a baby shower coming up October 22nd, so there's opportunity to get involved with that as well. And there's also opportunity to get involved with Wednesday nights. So we have a lot of activities on Wednesday nights. Some great stuff going on. Uh, we have a uh, Haiti announcement now. Come on up and there's a microphone right here for you. In your bulletins, there is uh, an announcement about our Haiti trip fundraisers we're doing. Uh, this is gonna be our first pulled pork barbecue dinner. We're inviting the whole church. We're inviting the church's friends, church's families, anybody that you know. All the proceeds 
that we get from this, donations, it's going to be a donations only. But everything that we get from this is going to the trip to buy material, pay for gas. Right now, gas is $175 a gallon. Huh? For five gallons? So I was going to say, well, I, I was reading something where it was really expensive. Wood, wood is really expensive. So everything that we normally buy is three to four to five times more. Right now, a lot of things are closed down. People are having a hard time getting food. So we plan on feeding some communities if we can, if the Lord gives us enough money. So, but if you could come out, eat with us, try it. If you like it, we can do it again. I practice all the time, so I hope it's good. And we want to thank everyone for the donations that has been given to our trip to buy material to feed families. It's something that's been laid on all of our hearts. You know, Mary goes more than the rest of us, makes us jealous. So, But once you go, you don't ever want to come back. Uh, again, we thank you for your donations. Most of all, we thank you for your prayers, your continued prayers. Pray for our safety. Pray for our flight. Pray for our trip this time, for the two weeks that we're there, that we continue to reach many people and share God's love, God's word. Most of all, build friendships that continue to go on. We're looking for the long haul, not the short haul. We do short missions, but we, we do short missions for long-term goals. So just want to thank everyone again and appreciate your help and hope to see you on Saturday. Good morning, everyone. So we are going to uh, kind of conclude our faith series uh, that we started this summer, um, looking at the book of Esther. And you see, we're going to cover the entire book of Esther today. And I was going to tell you that uh, I was going to have to cut off a little before six this evening because I had another commitment, but that's been canceled. So now we got another couple hours. So anyway, we're going to do a 10,000-foot uh, overview of, of the book, but we're going to be focusing in on, on very specific aspects uh, of the book. And uh, it's kind of interesting. So this is one of the... Uh, um, books of the Bible that doesn't mention God anywhere. And Martin Luther actually refused to preach out of this book. He did not believe that it should be in the canon, that it was extra biblical like the book of the Maccabees and, and uh, other uh, um, non-canonical um, books. Uh, and, but we're going to see here throughout that God is present throughout this entire story and is working uh, through this story and in pointing us in the direction to Christ uh, that we need to go. So let's uh, open up in, in prayer uh, before we jump into this story. Dear Lord, uh, we just uh, thank you for uh, the word that you've given us, the directions that you've given us, the examples of faith that you have provided for us. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to take these in and help them guide our lives, um, pointing in the direction that you have for us. We just lift up this time that it will be pleasing in your sight and that uh, your Holy Spirit will work through this message. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, we're looking at the, the book of Esther. Okay. Um, getting started in this, in uh, this faith series. And um, we're going to begin with a little bit of background. Okay. Just to kind of show you where we're at uh, in this story, so we're not just jumping in um, right away into it. So 
the time frame is about 483 to 473 BC. Okay, times um, were not recorded real well, so we we're kind of um, going a little bit on on faith on some of these dates and times on how they fit in. We're not saying absolutely uh, these are the the uh, exact dates, but we kind of give a range in here. So just give you, and I'll, I'm going to put some perspective on these dates as well here in just a second. Okay. Um, this occurs, the story occurs in the city of Susa, and this is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, okay, and I'm going to show you a map here in just a second so you can kind of uh, see where this is located. In current day, this is western Iran, okay, near the Persian Gulf, and so you can see on the map here where we're talking about, Susa is in red there, um, kind of in the center, um, you can see off to uh, um, where Iraq is, Iran, um, and Jerusalem, and Israel's off to uh, the left of Iran there. Okay. So this is the region we're talking about. This kind of brown highlighted area is the Persian Empire. Okay. This is all the territories uh, that they took over during their reign. Okay. So we're going to talk a little history. And I know everybody groans, oh, i got to learn history. My, my students are always, why do we have to learn history? There's no future in it. <laughs> There's my one dad joke for the day. Well, I won't promise it'll be my only dad joke, but it is one of my dad jokes. Okay. So it just helps put in perspective the stories that we're reading. Okay? If you understand kind of things that they're referencing and where things fit within um, the historical time frame. So we're going we're gonna to jump back to between 1300 and 1200 B.C. This is a time frame that the Hebrews leave Egypt, okay, and they cross over into the Promised Land. So they live about 250 years, give or take, um, and they're controlled by the judges. Okay, so we have the period of the judges. And then by 1020, okay, the Hebrews all start claiming that they want to have a king. We want to be just like everybody else. And we want to have a king. And God's saying, no, I'm your king. No, we want to have a king just like all the other uh, nations around us. And so Saul becomes king of Israel. And that lasts a relatively short period of time. Okay? He is uh, kind of a disappointment. And we'll see that. We'll come back to some of this a little bit later. Okay? So around 1000 BC, David takes the throne. Okay? A man after God's own heart. Um, but his children didn't do so well. Okay? So after David, his heirs take the throne and the kingdom divides. Okay? So there's all this infighting and we end up with the northern tribe, Israel. Ten tribes went with Israel and two tribes, the southern kingdom, are called, now called Judah. Okay? They are what become the Jews. So we have this divide that occurs. And we have the different, the errors of the different kings. Okay, and if you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, we read all the stories. Um, in Israel, we don't really have any good kings listed there. In Judah, there's, I think, eight kings that are considered good that follow God and 11 that do not. Okay. So we have a lot of, of uh, separation from God's plan during this, this period of time. So we go about 200 years, 180, and the northern kingdom, again, ruled by the bad kings, 
God sends his prophets warning them and warning them, and they don't listen. And so the Assyrians come in and take over the northern region and take over the northern tribes and, and take them captive, and they kind of become assimilated into the Assyrian culture. And these are referred to oftentimes as the lost tribes of Israel. We go about another 160 years, the southern kingdom, they now get conquered by the Babylonians. They have a series of bad kings. And again, the prophets come and and warn and give God's word. They don't heed that word. And so the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, come and conquer the Jews. And they take about 25% of the Jewish population into captivity, into the, the Babylonian lands. So they're taking the people away. And this is where we have the story of Daniel. That is what occurs uh, during this time frame. Then in 539, the Persians conquer the Babylonians and take over this whole region. We uh, have our Persian king, King Cyrus, or Cyrus the Great. He allows the Jews to return back to their home. You can read in the story of of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, that proclamation to return home and rebuild. So we have this period. So we're leading up just before we get to the time frame of Esther. So now the Jews have been allowed to return back to their, their promised land. But not all the Jews returned. Many of them decided to stay back. They've kind of been born and grown up in this Persian empire. And uh, they've gotten used to that way of life. And in exile, there are two common options. You either assimilate into your captor's lifestyle or you isolate and and put yourself in in similar situations. If you perhaps go to work in a place where there are very few Christians or maybe no other Christians, what are your options? Your two main options are, do you assimilate to that company culture, fit in with everyone else, or do you isolate yourself? I'm going to keep my door closed and, and I'm not going to go out and go to lunch or go out with, with the other people at work. I'm going to keep myself totally separate. Okay? Those are the two common options. That's not necessarily what we're called to do, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But that is the common way that people react, is they either assimilate or they isolate. And so that's going to become important when we get into this, this story here. So, um, in, you know, in the book of 1 John, it tells us, do not love this world, nor the things in it. Okay. For when you love the world, you do not love the Father in you. And so that's the problem with assimilation. We become to love the culture that we're in. Okay. And that is a problem for a lot of Christians today in our society. You can't tell a whole lot of difference between uh, some people, some you know, believers and the non-believers. Okay? They all go for this consumerism uh, lifestyle. We, you know, talk the same, dress the same, act the same. You can't tell any difference. Okay? They've assimilated into that culture because it's easier. Okay? We don't have the confrontations uh, that come about. Okay? The other option, as I mentioned, is isolation. Okay? Isolation. In Matthew, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do the people of light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So isolation is not what we're called for either. And we're not to hide away. We're not going to become you know, monastic, you know, hide away in, in a monastery. Okay? We are within the world. We don't have to be of the world, but we need to be in the world. We need to shine that light so that non-believers can see that. So those are, again, the two common options that, that people tend to follow. Um, but we've looked at examples of people of faith who have stood up different from that, who have not assimilated to the culture and not isolated themselves, but have still embraced uh, their beliefs and shown that light uh, before others. And that's what we're, that's what we're called to do here. Okay? So again, just giving a little context here. So when we jump into uh, Esther here, we're going to see what, uh, what did uh, these characters, what, what actions did they take. Okay. So, a little bit back to history. The Persian Empire, when they take over, uh, they did not force their captives to take on um, their traditions, their religions, their lifestyle. Okay. So they pretty much let the captives live however they want to, as long as they didn't impose their beliefs on everybody else. Okay? You had to recognize that the Persian king was God. Okay? So you had to acknowledge that, but you could still have your own gods as long as they were subservient to uh, the God king. Okay? So you could go ahead and practice your religious aspects, everything else, but don't interfere with the political life or... Um, put demands upon others. And we're seeing similar situations going on in our country right now. Okay? It's okay to come to church on Sunday morning okay? and give your money to the church as long as you're not imposing your belief systems on others. And what happened this summer when everyone started to think, oh, well, the, it's, we had this change by the Supreme Court on abortion was all due to the Christians imposing their will on everybody else and all the hatred and, and uh, vile natures that have come out because of that. Okay? We're seeing those attitudes. Well, well, we'll tolerate you Christians as long as you don't do anything that upsets us or try to impose any of your um, you know, incorrect beliefs on the rest of us. This is a problem for the Jews in living in Persia, the same as the problem that we have as Christians today. In a lot of people's mind, when you talk about the separation of church and state, they see these two large circles okay, that are separated. You've got church on one side, you've got the state on the other, and they are completely disconnected, and that's how it's supposed to be. That's what the founding fathers meant in their minds. But that's not what was meant that's not how we live. Okay. The intent was that the government was not supposed to be imposing upon our religious life. Religious life was not this equal part um, compared to the state life. Okay. Our religious life should be all-encompassing, everything. The state is just a small portion of that. And the state doesn't have the, um, 
the right to dictate our religious life. That was the original intent when we had that separation between the two. But people have misconstrued that. And I, and I think uh, you know, that is a, a factor from, from Satan who is pushing that lie. The father of lies is pushing that on people. That, oh, that, you know, your religious life and your state life should be equal but separate and should have no connection between each other. But our religious life should impact everything that we do, not just you know, our Sunday morning activities. So we get, into, we get into Esther now. So 486 BC, King Xerxes is on the throne. He is the grandson of Cyrus the Great. Um, he is also referred to as Ahasuerus. Okay. Ahasuerus. That's how he's going to be referred to in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus means high father. It's a title given to kings. So that's not his name. When we go through this, you're, we're going to see um, Ahasuerus is mentioned almost 30 times in the book of Esther. God is not mentioned once throughout, but the king is mentioned many, many times. Okay. So we're going to pick up the story of Esther three years into Xerxes' reign. Okay. And so we're going to summarize here chapter, the first few chapters. And I'm just going to read, again, the first few verses of chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India and Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors in the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So a six-month feast was going on. Again, this is a, the God king who is conquering nations. And he's putting out this big festival. Uh, at the end of this 180 days, he calls for this huge party. Lots of drink. For seven days, we're having this big party. And at the end of the seven days of constant drinking going on, he calls for his queen to come forth so he can show her off, Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti refuses this order and does not come forth. Now, a lot of times this is given an example of, oh, how wives should not behave before their husbands. But you have to understand the culture of what was going on. In Persia, women were property. The queen was property. She did not have power. She had status, but no power behind it. She was property of the god king. And what a lot of uh, scholars have proposed, we don't know the full story, we only are given what is written here in chapter 1, but because of this drunken state that he's in, he probably was going to call her forth and embarrass her, demean her, abuse her in front of all the men in the room. Okay. And she refused that. Okay. Now, his advisors, who are in big shock, 
said, we can't have this. We can't have the queen disobeying your order because now what are all the other wives in the kingdom going to do? They're going to take that example and they'll start disobeying. We can't have this. And so they advised the king to put her away, remove her from that status. And so listening to his advisors, that's what he does. He puts uh, uh, the queen out. So he no longer has a queen uh, with him. And so that's kind of our backstory. How we now suddenly have an opening for a new queen. Now this Xerxes, you may have heard of him from historical records. Over the last, uh, you know, what, 60 years, there have been a number of Hollywood movies and documentaries about uh, the Greek Spartans. Okay, the Spartans were this... Um, group that were, were known for the military strategies and strength. Okay? And Xerxes is trying to expand his empire by taking over all of Greece. Okay? And one very famous story is about this battle of Thermopylae. So the, the um, Persian army is coming in at least 60,000 strong. We don't know. Um, there were a lot of Greek historians some of those, again, trying to blow the story up, had it over a million Persians. We don't really believe that it was that many um, that were coming across, but at least 60,000. And to head to Athens, they had to go through this narrow pass at Thermopylae. And the Spartans came in there, 300 strong, led by King Leonidas. He was an actual historical figure. They... Um, opposed the Persian army and held them at bay for three days. So while the the rest of the the Spartan army and the Athenians were able to regroup, this 300 were able to hold off this massive Persian army until they were betrayed. Someone within their ranks betrayed them and the Persians were able to find a way around this narrow pass and defeat the 300. That's not really the point of our story, but I want you to know that Xerxes is not just a biblical figure. Oftentimes we read these stories and are these really true and do we have any other corresponding or corroborating facts? There is lots of corroborating facts about King Xerxes, about what he was like and his exploits. So because of this um, attack and and the problems that they ran into, Xerxes was, was... very downtrodden, and he was depressed and angry about what was going on. They actually were able to finally defeat uh, Athens, um, but not at a much higher cost than what he anticipated. He anticipated, much like Putin anticipated he was going to roll right into the Ukraine and take over, and that was nine months ago, okay? same thing. Xerxes thought he was just going to roll right in and ran into Obstacle after obstacle. And so he was very upset about this. And that takes us into chapter 2. Okay, so we kind of have a little bit of a gap between 1 and 2 of what's going on here. Okay, so after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had been abated, he remembered Vashti, his queen, and what she had done and, um, and the decree he had against her. And then the king's young men who attended him um, said... Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king 
appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hege, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases, excuse me, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now, in a lot of the Sunday school stories and the veggie tales and everything else, you know, they're going out and they're posting little flyers, hey, we're going to have a beauty contest throughout the kingdom and whoever wants to be queen. Okay? That's not what occurred here. They went out and they took these young girls. Okay? They went door to door okay, throughout the kingdom and were kidnapping these girls and taking them for the king's harem okay? for one purpose. This is, again, not the nice little story we, we often, you know, have in Sunday school. Okay? This is like, um, you know, if you remember back in 2014, uh, the Boko Haram in, in Nigeria kidnapped 300 young girls okay, from a Christian school okay, and took them captive. This is what was going on here, that same type of thing. They're going around kidnapping young girls. Most of these girls would have been probably between 13 and 15 years old. Okay? Because after that, most of them were married off by age 16 in that culture. So, now we get to Esther. Okay? Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king and Babylon had carried away. So again, we're, we're going back to around 1586 when the Babylon, Babylonians came in and took over the southern kingdom and Jerusalem and carried away the Jews. So Mordecai's family was part of that um, captive Jewish population. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther. Okay? Hadashah was her Jewish name. Esther was her Persian name. Okay? The daughter of his uncle, for he had, she had neither a father or a mother. So Esther had been orphaned, and her cousin Mordecai took her in and raised her. So Mordecai was a Jew that worked in the, the capital. Esther was his cousin, their grandparents have been taken captive, but notice Mordecai's parents named him after a Babylonian god. Okay, Mordecai was not a Jewish name. It was a Babylonian name. We see the assimilation going on here. Mordecai's parents clearly were assimilated into that culture, that they're naming their, their son after one of the gods there. Mordecai has since now become a popular Jewish name, but Prior to that, it was not. And here in, in chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, there was a Jew in Susa. A lot of the Jews didn't like him being identified as a Jew because he wasn't living the Jewish lifestyle. He was assimilated as a Persian. And there was no difference between him and uh, the rest of the culture. And so that's how he brought Esther up as well. Esther was probably 13 to 15, just like these other girls that were being um, taken. And so continuing on in chapter 2, and so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, 
And when many young women were gathered in Susa in the citadel in custody of Hege, Esther was also taken. So I want to point that out. She was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hege, who had charge of the women. So she was forcibly removed from her home and taken along with these other women, other girls, I should say. Esther was told not to tell that she was from Jewish origin. Okay? Mordecai told her, do not tell anyone. Don't let people know who you are. Again, that's part of his assimilation. We don't see that in the book of Daniel when Daniel is taken captive. He makes it very clear and very plain the God that he serves. But Mordecai is telling her, yeah, don't say anything. Just go along. Do everything that they tell you to do. And so that's how she did. So again, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to uh, King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. And so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So again, we have this young girl that she complies with all that she's told to do. Okay? And I'm not here to say how she should have lived during that time period or how she should have reacted. Again, she's you know, 13, 14, or 15 years old, put in this strange situation, taken to uh, a king who is there for his pleasure, and she complied. Yeah. So she assimilated into that situation. Mordecai, while this is going on, he hangs out outside the citadel. Okay? So he is one who, again, has assimilated, so no one paid any attention to uh, this so-called Persian who is staying outside the citadel. He, he would hang out where all the important people were coming and going, so he could kind of keep a track on what was happening to Esther. And during this time, he overhears a plot. So we kind of have this side story going on, okay, suddenly. He overhears a plot to kill the king. Some of his servants are now conspiring to take him out. And as a Jew, you might think, oh, well, this is a good thing. You've got this God king who proclaims himself over all other gods. Okay, to a true Jew, that should be very offensive, but for Malachi, or excuse me, for uh, Mordecai, he uh, is a, acting as a good Persian, and he turns these conspirators in. He tells Esther, who then passes the word on, and the rebellion is crushed, and, and these men are put to death. Okay. So he kind of shows where his alliances are with okay, during this. Now we get back to, we, we, uh, back to our full story with Esther, and now our villain, we always have to have a villain in the story, our villain enters in. So in chapter 3, after these things, uh, King Ahasuerus uh, promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamath, Hamath, have, excuse me, Hamadatha, I had to learn all these words, I have a cheat sheet by the way, I know, I'll know all these so on. I know I have a cheat sheet. 
and advanced him and set his, his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So we enter in this man who now gets to be number two across the entire Persian Empire. So Xerxes um, lifts Haman up to this, this level and commands that everyone bow down to him. And this was more than Mordecai could take. Okay? Um, and here's some reasons why. Um, it mentions Haman the uh, Agagite. Agagites are descendants of King Agag. Okay? The Amicalites. And we haven't heard about them for a long time. We're going to go back all the way back to Exodus. Okay? When and we, we saw this between 1300 and 1200 BC, the Hebrews were leaving Egypt and going into the Promised Land. The Amicalites were the first tribe to attack the Hebrews as they crossed into the Promised Land. And they were a constant thorn in their side. Okay? Um, in Deuteronomy, I'm going to read a, a quick passage in, a, in Deuteronomy regarding the Amicalites. Okay? Re- remember what Amalek did to you on your way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on your way when you were faint and weary and cut off and those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for your inheritance to possess, you shall blot out of memory of Amalek and under heaven you shall never forget. So God's saying, you know, because of what they did, you're going to blot out memory of Amalek. Well, we still have some memory of him here showing up. And later on, again, a couple hundred years later, when Saul's in charge, God gives him a direct command to wipe out the Amicalites. Leave no men or women or children or livestock. They are to take no plunder. They were to wipe them out completely. Well, Saul did not do that. Saul defeated the Amicalites, but he took their king, Agag, and brought him back. He took the best of the cows and the sheep and the treasures and brought those back. This was one of the reasons why Saul lost his kingdom, because he disobeyed what God had planned for him and left the Amicalites still um, in existence. So now we jump um, again about uh, 500 years into the future. They're still around. They're still causing problems uh, through Haman. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And this is his first time. This is his, his Jewish awakening I am not going to bow down. I am a Jew. I serve one God, and it's not uh, Haman. It's not Xerxes. I am not going to bow down. His assimilation would not go any further than that. And so God was working on him at this time. Now, this brought huge wrath um, coming from Haman, who found out that this man, this Jew refused to bow down to him. And, 
And, and this is kind of interesting. So someone doesn't bow down to you, you think, okay, well, I'm just going to take that person out. Or somebody, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. Okay? And you're going to react angrily to that. Okay? The normal response is, I'm not going to wipe out your entire population. Okay? I'm not going to commit genocide because of one offense. But that was his response. That was um, Amon's response is, I'm going to wipe out not only Mordecai, but all Jews everywhere. We can see Haman is a pawn of Satan, the true villain here. Okay, so not only do we have God working in the background and, and setting up his, his plans, but we also have Satan working throughout, just like he's working today. Okay, when we look at the decisions of people and the reactions of people, we have to be reminded of who's actually behind a lot of this. It is the work of Satan. Okay? He's constantly trying to thwart God's plans and remove his, his people. Okay. And so here we have, then um, Haman said to King um, Asaras, uh, there is a certain people, he's not even naming them, there's just a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among your peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's businesses. So that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So he's putting a bounty out on the Jews. He's going to pay for every Jew who is killed. And the king just goes on. Ah, my right-hand man says, I got these problem people. I'm, it's not really a big concern of mine, but yeah, go ahead, whatever you think's best. And they pick a particular day for this to occur so that all the bounty hunters out there know on this particular day, open season on the Jews. Okay? All of them throughout the entire uh, empire can be killed for profit. So again, a little extreme for not bowing down. So Mordecai sends word to Esther. Hey, Esther is oblivious to this. She has no idea what's going on. She, uh, Mordecai sends word before the, um, to go before the king and beg for the lives of the Jews. Okay? She's in a position now that she can have the king's ear and beg for uh, their lives. Esther returns back and says, all the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, that there is one, but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So anybody that just goes before the king without being called, instant death, okay? unless he happens to hold out his scepter to accept them. And so she's saying, I can't do this. I haven't been called for months. I can't just go in there and, and do anything about it. Mordecai replies back um, and says, do not think yourself that, the king's palace, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any other of the Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews, but from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he's letting her know that, one, God's got a plan. God doesn't need you to complete his plan. But he's called for you to do it right now. Here's the calling. If you don't do it, he will find another way. And we're all in that position. We're very fortunate. We have a creator who wants to include us in his plans. If we fail on that, he will still continue with his plans. But we're the ones missing out on that relationship and that fellowship with him in taking part of that plan. It's, it's, it's our failure. It's not going to be a failure of his plan. And Mordecai, in his awakening, recognizing, recognized that God will find a way to save the, the Jews. He will keep his promise to prosper his people. But he's telling her, well, if you don't step up at this point, that you and your father's house will perish. And, and what's he mean by that? Okay. Because if God saves all the Jews, why wouldn't she be saved as well? But if she denies being a Jew at this point, she's going to, and her house will be blotted out um, from God's chosen. Okay? Just so we have in Matthew 10, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay? In Hebrews 10, 26 For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if we reject God, if we don't accept the free gift that he has provided, and we deny him, he will deny us. And that's what he's telling Esther here. If you deny him, he will deny you. And then we have kind of a famous um, statement here that many sermons and songs and books are written about. Who knows whether you have come, not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he's recognizing now that all of these actions have led to Esther being in the right place at the right time uh, for doing God's work. Just like we all need to look at our lives and see what God has placed us into for, for his reasons. Okay? Um, this is the providence of the Lord. Providence meaning that he will provide. So look, and, and it's, it's often said, you can only see providence in the rearview mirror. Okay? You can only see it looking backwards. You usually can't see it while you're in the midst of it or ahead of time. Of what's going on. And, and look back, and I, I think this is a good exercise for all of us to look back at your life. Look at the, the, the decisions that you've made, the things that have occurred, good and bad, okay, that have brought you here and where God has been involved throughout um, those, those uh, different actions and decisions. Again, even if we make bad decisions, God is still there with us and still using us um, to. Uh, help his plan. So Esther now has her religious awakening. She's convicted 
for her stance and that she does need to acknowledge uh, who she is and who her people and who her true God is. And so she calls, and this is the closest thing to a religious activity we have in this entire book. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and to hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. So she's willing to sacrifice her life for the potential of saving uh, the Jewish people. Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. She's willing to give up her life uh, now for her faith and for her people. So a three-day fast. Fasting, the the point of fasting is to humble ourselves before God. It's not a matter of just going without food or drink. It's an act of humiliation before our Creator. To put ourselves lowly before Him. This is a reminder of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. He was called to do something and he was running away from it. And God took him for these three-day period. Okay, to remind him who he was okay, and who God was. Okay. So after three days of fasting with no food or water, she would be dehydrated and gaunt. Okay? But she goes before the king in this state. Okay. So in chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I believe God was working here through Xerxes at this time as well. Because again, she probably wasn't looking at her best at this point after three days of fasting but he recognized the need for her to come and speak to him and held out his scepter. This scene points to Christ's sacrifice in the same way that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac points forward. We're seeing that that walk as Esther comes in, not knowing how Xerxes was going to react. Okay, willing to sacrifice herself, put her life on the line as God's calling her to do. Okay? That is pointing to Christ's work on the cross. Okay? So the king holds out the scepter and grants her a wish, gives her a blank check, whatever you want. Okay? So she calls for a banquet. Okay? She doesn't come in there and plead for the life of the Jews or for herself. At this point, Xerxes still doesn't know that she is a Jew. She calls for a banquet. She wants to put on a luncheon for Xerxes and for Haman. And Haman's feeling pretty good about this. You know, hey, you know, I'm second in command and now the queen wants to put a banquet, invite me to it. Okay. 
Well, she also invites Mordecai. And when Haman sees him, he is not happy. Okay? He is not happy to see this guy at his banquet. So he goes out and he builds gallows. Okay? 50 cubits high. Okay? Mordecai, also not being, as being named after a Babylonian god, also means small man. So we got this short little guy. He's building a 50 cubit high um, gallows to hang this man. So his hatred is immense towards this guy. Okay. Well, through a series, and we're not going to go through all this, I encourage you to read through the rest of, of Esther. We're not going to read all the, uh, the happenings that, uh, that go on, but Esther essentially names Haman as the evil one that is putting forth uh, this death call for all the Jews. Okay. So she turns the tables on Haman uh, throughout this, and he receives the same fate that he had planned for Mordecai. So he is hung in these gallows. And we, we now stand, and, and Esther goes before the king again, once again, without being called. So a second time she takes her life okay, at risk by going for the king, and again he holds out his scepter, and she now reveals um, her true request of him rescinding that order to kill the Jews. Um, so the original order still is standing. But the problem, and we'll read this, so Esther spoke again to the king. She fell upon his feet and wept and pleaded for him to avert the evil plan that Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and then the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let the order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathada, and which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the province of the king. Okay, so she's asking for him to rescind the order. But it's not that simple. When a god king gives an order, it can't simply be rescinded. Because that would mean, well, that order was wrong. And king can't ever be wrong. Okay? So whatever order I give, that's a correct order. Okay? But I can order a new um, contingency, and that's what he does. He actually has Mordecai write the new order, the new law. Okay? So the original order still stood. The second order was needed to remedy the first. And so Mordecai wrote this, and it allowed the Jews at the king's um, authority to attack back and defend themselves against any of these people that came to kill them. So any of the bounty hunters, the Jews could attack using the king's resources to defend themselves. Okay? And they did. Okay? They mightily handled all the bounty hunters that were, were going after them and wiped out over 500 in, in Susa alone. Okay? But the Jews needed to take action for the salvation to, to come about. It's the same thing for us. Okay? We have the original order. Okay? For, all, for the wages of sin is death. That's our original order. Okay? That has not been rescinded. Okay? God's plan, he made the order that those that sin are under the penalty of death. 
And that order still stands. But he provided a remedy. In Acts 16, they brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So he provided the remedy for all of us. For that salvation. From that original order that's still out there. And there are many that are still under that same order. That are under that decree. But they must take action. They must believe and accept that gift. So believers, do you feel like God is silent throughout the, the struggles in your life? Through difficult times? No. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding of what's going on. Know that he is working. His promises will be fulfilled. Psalms 27, wait on the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It it doesn't always happen in our timing. It might be years of struggle, of difficulty, but he's there holding us up and working with us within his plan and his providence. And think about Esther. Was he really silent throughout this or was his plan being worked uh, behind the scenes the entire time? So while it seems like God's abandoned the Jews, he was actually setting in motion everything that was needed to save them. For those that haven't made a commitment, okay, that original order does stand. That for all who have sinned, the penalty is death. Okay? God cannot be in the presence of, of, of sin. He cannot allow those to uh, enjoy presence in heaven with him who, who have the stain of sin. And so he had to have that remedy, and he provided that remedy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the one way. There aren't many roads to God. He's provided one reprieve for the death sentence. And take that opportunity. Maybe you're here, maybe you're listening to this today for such a time as this to accept him into your heart and to believe that. So we are going to uh, close in prayer. We're going to have the band come up. And we're going to take an opportunity to to be united in celebrating God's promise in his remedy through his son, Jesus Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection in communion today. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this time that you've given us, the time to work through your stories and your word, and to look and see how you have your plans laid out for us, uh, that you are working constantly in our lives. And we just thank you for that, that we are not... uh, Uh, just forgotten um, that you do care for us so much that you want to include us in your plans and we just thank you for that we thank you for uh, the reprieve that you've given us through the the gift of salvation through your son we just take this time to uh, celebrate that before you in the name of your son jesus amen